Howdy. Welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're an old listener, welcome back. This week is episode 136. We're talking with Greg Knuckles of Stronger by Science. We talk about a bunch of different topics, including rationalism versus empiricism. So how do you know something, how to interpret the literature, and how to use the literature practically. We talk about P-ratios, so the amount of lean body mass to fat mass that you gain or lose when you're bulking or cutting. And we talk about the proximity to failure issues, so how close to failure should you go to maximize strength and or hypertrophy gains, and plus a bunch of witty banter in between. It's a really cool conversation. You guys are really going to like this. And without any further ado, let's jump in to this week's podcast. All right. So yeah, just whenever you want to give people, like, how do you introduce yourself to folks? Uh, I just say, hi, I'm Greg. It's uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, I assume. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I say. <laughs> well, that's very pleasant. I mean, it is an assumption. They might suck. It might not be a pleasure to meet them. Right. Uh, but I don't know that yet, you know? So I, I just assume the best. Well, that's what I'm, I have like a handful of phrases that just instill anxiety and be like automatically, I'm sure my blood pressure goes up. My adrenal glands just spurt cortisol. That's just like, if somebody goes, Hey, uh, are you Jordan Barbell Medicine? And then I have to say, well, that's not my real last name. It's Feigenbaum. And they're like, yeah, I can't pronounce that. And then they, they say, Oh, I've listened to all your stuff or read all your stuff. And I'm like immediately assuming they're going to say, and I disagree strongly. And I'm like, Oh no, this is terrible. <laughs> or if someone's like, I met your dad and I'm like, Oh no, what did Leonard say? <laughs> um, I, but I assume people recognize you at least somewhat. Uh, yeah. Do you, I guess you, you don't seem like the type of person who's like flexing, like, yeah, I, I run stronger by science. That's my baby. And, you know, I've done all this research, but, uh, did people recognize you like somewhat regularly or is it, is it rare? Uh, I don't, I don't know how often it actually happens. Like there, there will be, uh, like occasionally I'll, I'll be at the grocery store and I'll notice someone is like, staring me down and like kind of squinting which kind of gives me like do i recognize that person vibes uh but there have been very few times that someone's actually like come up and said something to me yeah i guess if you're at like a fit fitness expo expo or like some sort of like that setting you expect well yeah i I, I don't think that counts i don't think that counts It, it has to be in the wild like yeah i uh, it's, it's happened a number of times outside of like fitness related things where it's both times blew my mind. Like one time I was in, we had flown to New Zealand and it's like five 30 in the mm-hmm. morning. This kid is like, he's 13 or 14. And he's like, are you Jordan Barbell medicine? Like we're in the customs line and I'm barely awake. And I was like, Oh yeah, Jordan Feigenbaum. Nice, nice to meet you. Right. Uh, I think. And he's like, will you sign my lifting belt? And I was like, are you sure? I like, I feel like I'm just ruining your belt, you know, like at some point you're mm-hmm. going to realize that you don't actually like me or like <laughs> identify with our message. And now you got my stupid signature, which looks like trash, by the way, that's like day two of medical school, like ruin your signature. I'm like, cool. Did that. And <laughs> he's going to hate it. Uh, but that was cool. And his dad took a picture. And then the other time I was, again, I was in South Pacific, I was in Brisbane. I'm running, I'm on a run, which people know that I don't do that normally. And this guy yells out, Barbell medicine, like while I'm running a corner, turning a corner. And I was like, how did he spot me? Like, do I, is my body habitus like that unique? They're like, or they're like, this guy obviously can't run. It's got to be that dude. <laughs> and I mean, we had a productive conversation. It was fine. Uh, and it kind of makes you feel like, and maybe your audience is bigger than I thought. But um, yeah, I, you know, for the listeners at home, I just want them to get a picture of like, who is Greg Knuckles? Like, how did he, why is he on the Barbell Medicine podcast for a second time? And I think if you're in the fitness space, you already know. But for those who are maybe new to the channel, uh, give people a back like your academic background. Like, how did you uh, you get here? Uh, yeah, so I have a undergraduate degree in exercise science from uh, the world-renowned Harding University, Cersei, <laughs> right. Arkansas. <laughs> Beautiful Cersei, Arkansas. Um, <laughs> Oh man, I, I I had some good times at Harding, but it it would be difficult to uh, honestly describe Cersei as beautiful. But that's true. Okay. Yeah, you know what? Actually, downtown Cersei is kind of cute. I, I think I think I I think I get bad vibes just from like the drive in because that Dude. like that sh- that stretch of forty after the Mississippi River, uh, when you're when you're just like going through all of those little towns, like uh. 
man, I hope no one listening to this is from Earl, Arkansas, but that's, that's the most depressing place I've driven through in my entire life. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because, so you were coming, you're coming from the East, right? So you go through Memphis and East Memphis and everything else. I was coming from the North from St. Louis. And so you just take this random, you know, two, mostly two lane highway all the way down. And there's just like no man's land until you get to Searcy. So, uh, oh, yeah. that that would be a much better drive. I, I've done it in the opposite direction. Uh, the first time I went to the fitness summit in Kansas City, yeah, yeah. I, I assume I was taking a lot of those same roads. Yeah, um, dude, driving north uh, through uh, what are those? The Ozarks. Driving oh, north yeah. through the Ozarks around sunset. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Yes. But then, you know, invariably you end up in Missouri and you're like, ah, well, I could take it or leave it. But I mean, Kansas City you know, is nice. I, I, I take offense at that. I, I think the I think the geography of like rural Missouri feels a lot like rural North Carolina. Sure. Uh, and sure. that's I mean, that's where I grew up. I was like, oh, this this feels like a normal ass place. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think with respect to road trips, as far as the prettiest things that I've ended up like seeing randomly the i went to medical school in virginia in norfolk and then i lived in st louis so it's one interstate the entire way it's interstate 64 that Mm -hmm. for trivia nerds it ends in virginia and on the east end and then on the west end it ends in st louis so i literally lived off the same interstate 964 miles door to door but you drive right through the appalachian mountains Mm -hmm. and you're like and again during sunset oh boy that's something did, did you were, were you ever able to take that drive uh, when the leaves were changing? Yes, yes, and oh, it that's the yeah, best. It really is, and I wish that I would have like stopped or gone slower. But I was just like, it's a sixteen-hour drive, and yeah. like the, the first time I made it was the day after the very first USAPL Raw Nationals that I competed in, and mm-hmm. so I'm like, I'm not feeling great in the car for whatever reason, and I'm like, just get this over with. I hate it. <laughs> No, that's, that's, that's incredibly understandable. Yeah. Um, this, this is, this is just a random thing in terms of like, I guess like a combination of cute and beautiful, uh, mountain home, Arkansas might oh. be the cutest place I've ever been to. Yeah. Um, like I, 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 th- I think I'm just overcompensating to, to make it sound like I'm not throwing shade at the entire state, <laughs> like especially Northern Arkansas is so pretty. It's, yeah. It's some of the best country. Yeah, there's some cool spots in Arkansas, no doubt. Uh, so the reason why we keep talking about Arkansas, I actually went to Harding University for a year and a half. Greg's Greg and I's time did not overlap, but that's just a funny like connection that we have there. Um, were, so Greg, were, you, were you exercise science at uh, at Harding? No, no, I was a uh, biology and then Bible major. So the like, this is not, I'm not trying to get into my personal history too too much, but we, uh, we were not well off growing up. And so Mm -hmm. like thinking about going to college and not really knowing how to apply appropriately. I had very good marks uh, in high school. I probably could have applied more broadly or to different places and got more scholarship, you know, offers, Mm -hmm. but Mizzou didn't really offer me that much, which was our big state school. And uh, Harding actually did. So they were on the condition, like, yeah, you're going to be a Bible major and you can double major if you want. So I went there for a year and a half, realized I didn't really like that, and then ended mm-hmm. up going to a different state school, which offered me additional scholarship. So uh, I was, yeah, Bible and then biology, which interestingly, like biology there had a weird kind of tinge to it because you're like, they're very creationist, you know, kind of kind of base yeah. Yeah. so it's, like it's like you, you know there, there are these things called bacteria and when you start talking about <laughs> antibiotics like sometimes the bacteria change and we need new antibiotics but like they're definitely still the same you can't say they're evolving uh, sure right right, right but right. you know they're, they're still the same bacteria they're the same types of bacteria that god created six thousand years ago uh but sometimes they change slightly to uh to develop drug resistance oh it was funny when i transferred so i trans <laughs> yeah i tra- when i transferred to the state school all of my credits effectively were useless except for like some of the bible classes were like <laughs> f- kind of just philosophy and then i took a i took like chem 100 like the mm-hmm. the you know very entry level and they counted that as chem one 
for like inorganic one, if you were pre-med or pre any sort of health science, mm-hmm. which was completely the wrong decision. Because when I, I, I took chem two and I was like, wait, what is this ice, you know, or this equilibrium, you know, kind of thing? What is stoichiometry? I'm so confused <laughs> right now. I just know the periodic table at this point. So that was a challenge. But um, yeah, so Greg, Greg went to Harding. You graduated. You had a Bible degree. You had an exercise science degree. Uh, and then you ended up getting your master's. Was it UNC or did you? Or, yes, sir. Chapel oh, Hill. That's a flex. And uh, we're officially calling it ex- an exercise science master's. Yeah, yeah, I... There's some long title, but it's it's exercise science. And then your thesis was in what exactly? Uh, it was on sex differences in um, in fatigue and recovery. Yeah, so this is kind of where we left off. So that just like a nice politically charged topic, I assume that people really try to give you trouble about. Yeah, not not uh, not actually politically charged at all. It's 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 very funny to talk to people who have never been in academia about, mm-hmm. about how, uh, how PC academia is. Cause yeah, w- whenever I would post about it while I was, uh, while I was going through that process, there were, there were a bunch of people that, that were just like, ah, if you, if you claim that there are any sex differences whatsoever, like they're going to run, they're going to run you out of town. They're going to cancel you. Yeah, right, right, right. And it's just like, dude, just run a PubMed search. There's literally thousands of papers on this and it's, it's never been a big deal. Like no one cares. You, you care more than anyone in my department does. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but I, I think that's a, a difference. Like, you know, your role that you're assuming with that thesis and then also when you post about it is not so much of like an issue advocate or like a, you know, a politician certainly, but more of like an honest broker of information. You're like, here's what the information that we have at present says, here's kind of my take on it. But as far as like making policy or like making decisions based on this data, shrug emoji, you know, at least that's how I kind of like read your, your kind of take on it, which is similar, I think, to my take on like the transgender individuals in sport. When I, mm-hmm. I wrote this article, it's like, yo, here's the information that we have right now. I don't necessarily have an opinion on how it's best used for making policies, but here's the limitations that we have currently based on the evidence. And so ideally people smarter and more well-equipped to make policy decisions will take that into consideration and make the appropriate decision based on values and, you know, societal sort of, you know, benefiting, benefiting society and the, and the stakeholders in the sport. But I get the same response. Anytime I post about that, they're like, Oh boy, you're about to get either canceled or you're, you know, you've got this wrong or whatever. And it's like, I'm just reporting the facts here as far as we know them, you know, and I don't, but yes, academics don't usually do that unless they've transitioned to being an issue advocate, in which case I feel like it actually makes their case a little bit weaker Mm because now they're like, they're admitting their bias straight out the gate. And it's like, yeah, I don't know how well this is going to work. Yeah. I I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I think, um, that's probably not the direction we want. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on. So, uh, and then just to give people back uh, some uh, some of your lifting chops, so people are like, "Well, okay, but like, how strong is Greg?" So, Greg might actually be the strongest exercise science researcher that's that's active in the game. Uh, and I say that I don't say that lightly. I mean, your best raw squat is eight hundred, as I recall. Um, you've benched close to five or over five, and then you've pulled about the, you know, somewhat close to your squat. I, I'm trying to think of anybody who's actively publishing or has recently published research who's demonstrably stronger than you in the arbitrarily important power lifts. And I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like there've been maybe one or two really, really good strongmen that have, uh, that have published some data out in Australia. Sure. Um, I, I, I have that feeling, but I'm not totally sure. Um, Ooh, I did find something out interesting, uh, maybe like a year ago. Um, there was a really, really cool paper out of Germany, I believe, uh, that was looking at, it, it, it was, I think a paper that filled in a neat gap in the periodization literature, um, because so one of the things that you'll see in the periodization literature is it generally like both if you like meta analyze it or if you just look at individual studies, like pretty much at every level of resolution, 
periodized training tends to produce larger strength gains than non-periodized training. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at the methodology of those studies, generally what you have is a non-periodized group just doing, you know, like sets with 70, 75% of their one RM or like a 10 rep max load. And, and that's it. Like they're not changing intensity. Whereas the periodized group, you know, some, some days are higher, some days are lower, might be linear periodization, might be undulating, mm -hmm. but whatever. There, there are days where, you know, they're going up to 85, 90, 95% of one RM. And so their strength gains are larger, but also their peak training intensity is also higher. So it's like, well, is periodization doing this or is it just the fact that this group is able to train with heavy loads and the other group isn't? Uh, so there was a paper, there, there were two papers out of Germany um, that were comparing periodized and non-periodized training where one of the groups was doing weekly uh, undulating periodization and the other group was doing non-periodized training. But instead of just sticking at one intensity, um, like within each training day, they got in like two heavy sets, two medium sets and two light sets. So they, they were like they, they were matched for peak training intensity as well, not just average intensity. Um, and the, the subjects in both of those groups gained similar amounts of strength, which is, is interesting and does kind of call into question some of that literature. Like, you know, is, is it periodization causing these effects or is it mainly just differences in intensity? Uh, but anyway, I, I recognized the researcher's name from somewhere and, and I'm blanking on it. I should have looked it back. I, sh I should look it back up, but I'm pretty sure it was Ann Treader. Um, okay. And I was like, that name sounds familiar. So I just like Googled the lead author um, and just like old school German bodybuilder, like no. fucking huge, <laughs> looks great. Like, you know, he looked great in his prime. He's, he's a little older now, still looks fantastic, but fucking huge. I was just like, well, that th this inherently makes these findings more credible. In my sure. Opinion. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like if, if, if I, if I ever pulled up PubMed and there was like a study from uh, Coleman and rule, uh, th that's like the author <laughs> yeah. line. I'd be like, well, okay, this is true. I, yes. I, I don't even care what they say. Like it's 100% true. Yeah. The, the, the subject is like, is it really nothing but a peanut? Or <laughs> <laughs> Or if Marcus rules on the paper, it would be like uh, the effect of protein intake on flatulence. Yeah, right. Uh, like, checks. He, I feel like he is the world leading expert on that. Yeah. Checks out. Uh, it's actually a good segue into this first section. Um, so again, Greg's very, very well educated, very, very strong. Um, we're going to talk about the literature and you guys can't see this, but I'm making scare quotes. Uh, if you haven't already listened to the Iron Culture podcast where they discuss uh, – Greg's on it and he's talking about rationalism versus empiricism, uh, don't stop this podcast now. Just you know, finish listening to it and then that's your next one. So there you go. Gave you guys some more, some more stuff to put into your brain hole. It, can you summarize that discussion? Because I really think that's a – we'll set the tone when we actually discuss the literature as it pertains uh, to the rest of our topics. Uh, yeah, sure. So um... – rationalism and empiricism let's you know let's let's hop in a time machine and go back to the 1700s um yeah 1600s i guess but anyway anywhere between like the 1600s and 1800s that's that's when people were were, were really debating this stuff so there, there are two different approaches to epistemology uh epistemology is uh, the, the philosophy of truth basically philosophy of knowledge so how what is true and, and how can we know? Um, and so rationalism is basically a, uh, a logic, primarily deductive logic approach to epistemology. So basically, if you start with true premises and you apply the right deductive logical forms and arguments, um, starting with the correct premises, you should wind up at the correct conclusions. So that's kind of the, the kernel of the idea behind uh, rationalism. And then empiricism uh, initially was, was basically like we can know what is true or not based on our sensory experience. And now like with modern science, the it's kind of been expanded to like 
you know, whatever we can measure with, with a, a reasonable amount of precision and accuracy, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, we, we can know what's true or not based on taking measures and trying to directly observe it. Um, and so, yeah, the, the scientific process definitely, definitely includes uh, elements of both, of both rationalism and empiricism. So, you know, when it comes to uh, generating hypotheses, say like that's, that's a, a rationalist approach. So, you know, if, if there's several papers looking at uh, a particular mechanism and you're like, okay, we think we know this, we think we understand this mechanism pretty well. Um, so if, if this holds, here should be some longitudinal outcomes that this mechanism should contribute to. Uh, that's, that's like a rationalist way of thinking about it. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we, we start with the premises that this mechanism has this effect in an organism, uh, therefore it should produce this result. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's a rationalist mode of thinking. That's how a lot of, uh, hypothesis generation tends to work. Uh, and then the actual <laughs> experiment part of it, <laughs> you know, that's, that's generally pure empiricism. Like you have a question you want to answer, you design a study that helps you answer it, and then you collect data and, and you come to your answer based on what the data says. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was like an hour and a half long conversation, but I, I feel like that's a decent five minute distillation. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a very important sort of distinction, I think, for people to wrap their brains around because what you get, what we find, or at least what I see a lot of is people using what I would consider rationalism or rationalist arguments to kind of support mm-hmm. what they're doing, which I don't necessarily think is a bad way to go if there is no empirical data to like inform your decision. It's like, all right, well, you have to use something to mm-hmm. like make an educated guess at management. But the idea, the the problem is you have to temper your confidence in like that, in that management or in those strategies. So for example, to put some, you know, uh, a scenario here, uh, we have EMG data, for example, on various exercises and that show different muscle excitation levels. And so the idea is that that's, that's a mechanistic study effectively. Like, yo, does this, these different exercises, do they activate different muscle fibers or different amounts of muscle fibers or, you know, uh, and there's, yes, issues with EMG in and of itself, but that's for a whole nother podcast. We'll get Vygotsky on here to like lay down the law, but then, so you're like, all right, well, so we have these mechanistic data, these rationalist sort of arguments that these certain exercises activate the quads more or certain quad muscles of the quadriceps. So if we want to strengthen those, those are the exercises we should choose, but we don't necessarily have the empirical data to like that shows, yes, in fact, choosing these exercises reliably produce greater strength gains or muscle gains, you know, muscle cross-sectional area improvements. So you don't have empirical data to back that up. So the, the way that you sort of phrase that, I think would be, yeah, we think this will work. We have some, you know, hunch that this should provide a better outcome, but we don't really know. Mm-hmm. You have to, almost tempering your confidence, but that's not what people do on the interwebs. They're like, see, wait, I've got data. I've got receipts that shows that this, these exercises work better. And it's like, mm, do you though? Uh, so I feel like the confidence has to be proportional to the level of data that you actually have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely true. Uh, and I think that when, when someone wants to make a, a rationalist case, it's, you know, it, it's an A to B to C to D to whatever letter sure. your, your uh, intended outcome is. Uh, it, it's that type of argument. And I think you can have more and more and more confidence in a rationalist argument based on how, how few steps there need to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's actually being observed in the outcome you're interested in. So for example, um, if we use, yeah, let, let's just take EMG data as an example. So uh, EMG isn't identical to muscle activation, but it's right. it's certainly correlated with muscle activation, motor unit activation. Um, and so then motor unit activation uh, should be associated with tension on each muscle fiber. The tension on each muscle fiber should be associated with the uh, like actual biochemical signaling, ultimately resulting in, in acute muscle protein synthesis. 
and then, and then acute muscle protein synthesis should be associated with longitudinal training outcomes to some degree, hypertrophy, et cetera. And so you, you've got like four or five steps there. Um, and so what you're observing EMG, that's multiple steps removed from the actual outcome you're interested in. If you had, say, muscle protein synthesis data, that gets you a couple steps closer to the outcome you're interested in. And so, you know, you probably wouldn't want to sell the farm uh, on, on the basis of muscle protein synthesis data, but that's closer to the outcome you're interested in than EMG is. And so, yep. you know, if, if you had uh, EMG and muscle protein synthesis data pointing the same direction, you could, you could have more confidence in that rationalist case than if you just had EMG data. But then if you actually had a longitudinal study, like that's obviously way more valuable than either one because you're, you're directly assessing the thing you're interested in. And you can take it the other way. Um, so, you know, if you have EMG data and you're interested in hypertrophy, uh, you know, that's, that's a weak case. But then if you extend it out even further and you're interested in like, changes in uh basketball performance or something like that (laughs) right 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 so then you're talking about like how to what degree is hypertrophy associated with improvements in like sprinting and jumping ability like the types of things that are going to translate to the basketball court uh you know there's probably some degree of association there might depend on how much muscle the the athlete already has but whatever there's probably some degree of association and then if someone runs a little bit faster and jumps just a little bit higher, how much is that going to affect their points per game or like player efficiency rating? Maybe a little bit, but also not a ton. So then if someone was trying to go all the way from like, oh man, we have this EMG data. It's really cool. It's really good. You do these exercises and you're going to be a better basketball player. Like those, where you're starting and where you're ending up, not even the same zip code. Uh, And so you can say honestly, accurately, that there's weak evidence that this exercise may be good for basketball players. But if all you got is EMG, that's very, very, very weak evidence. Yep. It's not nothing, but it's not much. Right. And then also, you know, so then I don't want people to take the wrong thing away from this when you're saying if, if, if you if you have data like, oh, yeah, these particular exercises do, in fact, seem to correlate to an improvement in basketball performance. Like you saw the, the team A did these exercises. They performed better than team B that didn't do these exercises. And it's like, see, boom, right there. Got it. And it's like, yeah, well, so now you have to investigate for confounding variables because there's a lot of other stuff that's going into basketball performance that may be completely unrelated to the, the intervention. And so, mm-hmm. I yeah, there's, there's issues here with the quote unquote literature and how people are not only uh, like using it to make decisions, but also like per, uh, uh, putting it out there in the, in the, in this case, the social media space, you know, and, and nobody's saying like, yeah, there's weak evidence to show this. They're saying there's some evidence or there's evidence without a qualifier. And it's like, yeah, I guess that it's less sexy when you say that there's very weak to incredibly weak evidence showing this relationship. You know, man, I wonder if, uh, so I I wonder if people do overstate their confidence because their audience has trained them to, Sure, at least to some degree. Like Like you have to almost, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of it is just like, a lot of people probably don't know anything about philosophy of science uh, and like how to, how to grade evidence. Uh, But, you know, even if someone is, you know, out, out there on the grind, trying to be uh, as, as intellectually honest as possible. Um, so if you say, and, and like we do this w- when we post uh, like little study summaries on Instagram, we, we try to be as honest as possible about uh, like the, the strength and quality of, of evidence we're presenting. And whenever we say like, oh, you know, this this suggests that, or like, this is, you know, weak evidence pointing in the general direction of, we get a bunch of angry comments of people being like, Oh, dude. Oh, like, well, what, you know, if, if this isn't like proving that X, Y, and Z, like, why, (laughs) why are you even talking about it? And so like, we're, we're not going to do this because, uh, 
I would not be able to sleep at night if we did. But like, there's a part of me that sometimes I'm just like, yeah, we should just math. We should just overstate our confidence in everything we talk about just because we'll get way less annoying comments if we do. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, people, people prefer the concrete sort of, you know, it's this or that, or like, here's, here's the way it is certainly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a perfect segue into this next question. Like, do you give influencers or people with, you know, broad audiences a pass for making what you would be considered, you know, scientifically inaccurate statements? Uh, but it, you know, as long as they're trying to help or like move the needle forward, do you, do they get a pass in your, in your mind? I don't know, man. Um, so let, let me admit something real quick. All right, here we go. We're getting it off. Track. I don't follow anyone in the fitness industry. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> I, uh, so th- there are, there are people I, I know and respect that I chat with about things. Um, and I keep up to date with the literature and then I, I do have a decent idea about what's going on, like what, what the big trends are. Um, just because like we have a Facebook group and we have a subreddit and like people will share stuff that is, you know, hot topic issues and controversial at the time and be like, hey, what do you think about this? So that that is the full extent of the, the degree to which I'm connected with like popular level fitness industry stuff. So I have no idea what the fuck anyone is saying about anything. Um, so I, I can't give them a pass and I can't hold them to account because I, I don't know what claims people are making for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, I'm just in my little corner of the Internet trying to do good work. And uh, yeah, here, I mean, I don't know. I think we probably disagree about this. Uh, but when I was when I was uh, just starting out in my career, I definitely used to wade into more controversies um, sure. and try to hold people to account more for false claims. Um, but there's a part of me that over time has just become far more nihilistic about that. Sure. Um, I don't think, I mean, I certainly don't think it's impossible for, for public opinion to change about things, but also I do think, I, I think that one of the meta problems, uh, not just in fitness, but in really any place that you're trying to disseminate information, uh, you know, be that the news, be that about politics, whatever. I think, uh, there is a, just natural inclination of people to prefer um, confident, simple explanations. Um, And I think a lot of times the, I don't want to say the truth because I I don't know what the truth is, but at least like the most empirically justifiable explanations for things a lot of the times uh, don't have, maybe don't have a great narrative behind them and aren't particularly simple. In a lot of the bad information I see floating around, especially in the fitness space, is kind of that that flavor of misinformation. Like it, it feels good. Like there there might be a, a nice, simple sounding, uh, satisfying, rationalist narrative behind it. You know, you have a couple mechanisms that aren't hard to explain, and if everything works out, here here's the outcome, and like that should. That should pan out. It's pretty simple. Um, and I feel like I feel like it's human nature that stuff like that will ultimately be appealing to most people most of the time. And so I, I think I'm kind of nihilistic about a lot of this stuff because I, to me, that's baked in. Like, I, I think that that sort of misinformation will always be, if not necessarily culturally dominant information, at least very, very popular and successful type Mm -hmm. information. Uh, And uh, like, unless we can change human nature, I don't know that I personally can do anything about it. So for me, like it's just baked, it's baked in. Like I, uh, I, I try to put out the best information that I can, but I don't think that I personally can, can do anything to combat misinformation on a large scale. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good perspective. I think certainly there's, 
systemic level problems with with trying to do that because it's like even if you try and you know you're really putting a lot of effort there i don't know if you move the needle at all yeah <laughs> my my issue is that if there are great harms being associated with a number of maybe inaccurate statements then it's almost like well you just like let it go which is certainly an option and you know probably a better use of most people's time just given like the to the ability you have to maybe change either what the people are saying or the interpretation of what's being said uh, or do you do you fight back actively and you know spend a bunch of time on that i i think the issue with like kind of accepting it is that then you're basically accepting a race to the bottom cuz effectively you just start saying the most confident, outlandish, yet sexy sounding stuff that you can come up with to try to amass an audience. And then, you know, that that's, that's where we'll head. But I don't know. I, you might be right that there's just no point in trying and we just try to do our best and, uh, and go from there. I just, it, it's tough when you feel, when you perceive the harm to be substantial and, uh, perhaps a better way to approach this is instead of going on like an individual by individual basis is that, there needs to be like a societal level change and like how do we inter- interpret and, and access information and because if you could get people more comfortable with uncertainty and like yeah. this is likely to change then you don't get the sort of blowback from like well they're changing their minds all the time or like public confusion or distrust and so i i think uh <laughs> I, I think part of this difference uh might boil down to the fields in which oh, we sure. operate yeah because I mean, like, I, I see that like P ratios are, are further down in your outline. And I mean, so, you know, I, I think uh, it, mine and Eric's stuff on that, like, so very brief recap. Uh, there's this idea that as uh, people gain more body fat, like as body fat percentage goes up, um, P ratios go down. So P ratios are the proportion of change in weight that is lean mass. So basically, mm-hmm. if you gain a kilo of weight and 0.8 kilos of that is lean mass, your your P ratio is 0.8 or 80%. That's a pretty high P ratio. Uh, whereas if, it, if you only gained 0.2 kilos of lean mass, your P ratio is only 0.2 or 20%. And that's very bad. So for every kilo of fat or kilo of weight you're gaining, most of it's fat and very little of it's lean mass. So there... There's this idea um, that I think most people still hold that um, as as body fat levels get higher, P ratios go down. Uh, and so Eric Trexler and I, mostly Eric, uh, we, we looked into that um, and there's just not good evidence for it. So right. um, the, the strongest evidence is uh, like cross-sectional overfeeding studies in untrained people without a resistance training stimulus. And and that does find what I just described. So people who are very, very, very lean who overfeed without a resistance training stimulus do tend to mostly gain lean mass, like of the weight they gain. Uh, And people with more body fat, when you overfeed them without a resistance training stimulus, they do tend to gain a larger proportion of fat. Um, but the thing is, like those same papers look at it in reverse and it's like, OK, so how much lean mass is lost when people diet? And they 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 find the exact same thing. So more lean mass is lost when lean people diet, less lean mass is lost when uh, people with more body fat diet. Uh, but like we also know that uh, like the actual P ratio numbers that they report for that side of things just doesn't pan out uh, <laughs> when we yeah. introduce yeah, a resistance yeah. training stimulus. So you know, when, when someone is training, especially if they're not super, super lean, they can maintain all of their lean mass or like almost all of it. So, you know, P ratio should be infinitesimally small for the weight loss side of things, as long as there's a resistance training stimulus present. Uh, so like, you know, we, we can see clearly from that side of things that, you know, the, those models maybe don't apply super well to, uh, to resistance training individuals. Anyway, that was way more intro than we needed to, to make the point that I wanted to make. Um, so when it comes to me and like Stronger by Science as a company debunking something, it's generally something like that. And the thing is, uh, if we're wrong, doesn't really matter. And, <laughs> right, right, right. and if the perspective that we're combating is wrong, also doesn't really matter that much. You know, if, sure. 
if someone's uh, 20% body fat and we're saying like, you know what, you can probably stay at maintenance or be in a slight surplus and still build muscle just fine. That's fine. Uh, and if, you know, they, they believe that uh, 20% might be too high to maximize hypertrophy and they need to cut a little bit, that's also fine. You know, we're, we're dealing with very, very low stakes. Sure. Um, so like, whatever, we, we try to be correct and helpful, but, uh, if the people we're disagreeing with are wrong or if we're wrong, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, no harm, no foul, like there, no, nothing catastrophically bad is going to come out of that regardless. Whereas like, you know, you're dealing with pain stuff, you're dealing with medical stuff. Stakes are a lot higher. So I, I can definitely understand, uh, more of a feeling of urgency when it comes to combating misinformation. I, I just feel like in the space where I operate, the stakes are just so low that, sure. yeah. that I, I'm more comfortable being a bit more nihilistic. Yeah. What's the best <laughs> exercise for leg hypertrophy? And you're like, well, yeah, I don't know that I need to go argue with people on the internet about that. But yeah. if somebody's what? saying that the COVID-19 vaccine has got a microchip in it and is like causing autism, you're like, all right, we probably need to push back against this because it's causing maybe more severe harm. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like I feel like I would feel more of a sense of urgency if I was more confident that the state of the fitness industry was such that most people were kind of close to being able to take that extra step to look at things more deeply. <laughs> but then like I'll, I'll open up my discover tab and it's just like, Oh, you're hungry here on the left. You could eat a donut or you could eat four pounds of broccoli, same <laughs> calories uh, that that blew your fucking mind. And then it'll have like 145,000 likes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm just that. like, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, time to retire. <laughs> yeah. Wh whatever I'm doing, um, these 145,000 people aren't, aren't, aren't going to be into that, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. It's depressing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That's funny. No, I, I think that's good perspective. So yeah, we've, we, Greg and I, maybe there's a Knuckles Feigenbob continuum for like caring <laughs> that's in proportion to maybe the amount of harm or potential. No, it's, it's, it's not that I don't care. I just uh, I just don't think that there's really anything notable I can do about it. Sure, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I, I just try to do the best that I can. And, uh, you know, if, if I'm able to move the needle on some topics, cool. Uh, and if I'm not, that's fine, because I, I didn't expect to be able to in the first place. <laughs> yes. Uh, Austin trends tor more towards your side. Uh, although, when it comes to, like, pain, for example, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh. The dude just flips a lid. It's crazy. We were at the CrossFit Level 1 MD, like, cert thing. We got invited to Hawaii to, like, participate, which, is, interestingly, that certification is the exact same as the regular CrossFit Level 1. It's not, like, set up for, like, doctors. It's just, like... They put MD on the end of it, but it's the same level one that I did 12 years prior. That's I so remember, sick. That's I remember so remarking, I was like, I, was like, Dude, it's, <laughs> it, I think it's the same thing. <laughs> it, it, indeed it was. And so uh, at some <laughs> at some point, the, the person who was leading the class, like leading the thing was like, yeah, and if you do this leg exercise, like you're like a leg extension, he's like, you're going to put all this extra pressure on the patella and you're going to hurt your knees. And I see Austin, like his face becomes a little more flush. His eyes, a little more proptosis. His eyes are popping out a little bit. And I was like, hey, bro, I got you. And so like I took that question. I was like, so what you're saying is, and we kind of did a little pain science kind of thing because we're like, you can't tell a bunch of physicians who actively see, you know, thousands of patients a year collectively, like, you know, this stuff and have them take that home. Because if yeah. they're not up on this, then that's a potential big, big harm. And then similar, but I didn't personally care as much. I was just like, yeah, well, this is stupid. So whatever, we'll just move on. Mm -hmm. Then during the nutrition thing, uh, part of the the course, the guy was saying, yes, like eating any sugar is just detrimental to your health and blah, blah, blah. And like incompatible with health and, and all these other kind of egregious claims. And I, that same thing happened to me. My face starts getting a little flush. My eyes start like bugging out. And Austin's like, no, no, I've got this. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you could put people on a dextrose drip in the hospital, you know, and they'll still lose weight. 
because it's just, it's about energy balance. So, and the instructor was like, I don't believe that to be true. And then it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was a weird deal. But the, but the physicians in the, in the, in the crowd, they like recognize that to be true. And they're like, oh yeah, this doesn't make actual any sense. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to ignore this. But uh, yeah, so that's just kind of a funny, funny aside. Uh, this is, this is great though. This is like, I think this helps our audience and maybe your audience who's crossing over and vice versa to like, we don't have to get involved in every argument on the internet. I'm sure you guys get tagged and stuff all the time. And you're just like, yeah, I'm not taking this on. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it happens to us all the time. We're like, man, I'm not fighting this fight. Cause I don't think anything's good. Good is going to come from this in addition to just my time actively being wasted. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that that happens a lot. I'll get tagged in like comment sections of posts oh. that like people are sure I'm going to disagree with, and, and I'm just like, "What do you expect me to do, man?" Like, it's, right, it's, right. it's four p.m. on a Saturday. Uh, I, I I don't necessarily want to peddle my wares in the marketplace of ideas uh, <laughs> for six hours in this fucking comment thread when I could be spending time with my wife. Like, yeah, and also, dude. You tag, not you specifically, but like the person who tagged me. It's like, dude, you tagged me in this fucking comment thread. You know I'm going to disagree with this. You've yeah. read my stuff. You right. have this argument, you know? You, yeah. I, I don't I don't have the time of day to uh, to argue with everyone that someone wants me to argue with, you know? Right. People tag us and they just say, thoughts? It's like T-H-O-T-S. <laughs> and we're like, you already know. <laughs> We have an article or podcast or YouTube like discussing explicitly this. So like you already know. Uh, that's fine. Oh, well. All right. So we talked about P ratio. That's kind of as deep as I wanted to get. That's very useful to folks. Shrug, shoulder shrug emoji. Stakes are low. Do yeah. The, the only thing I'd, I'd add just to put a bow on that um, is is because th- this does go back to what we were talking about with rationalism versus empiricism. So they're there's a decent rationalist case someone could make if we assume that there's no empirical evidence that um, higher body fats would would have a negative effect on on P ratios. So um, when people just cross-sectionally with higher body fat levels tend to have higher levels of inflammation. Uh, when mm-hmm. just baseline levels of inflammation get too high, that can have a negative effect on hypertrophy. Um, they probably have to get quite a bit higher than you would typically see with just kind of run of the mill obesity. But you know, there is that effect uh, that that could be playing a role. Um, We also see that again, without a resistance training stimulus, uh, just in protein feeding studies, when you feed protein to lean versus obese people and look at uh, postprandial muscle protein synthesis, it's higher in lean people and obese people. So again, you could look at that and say like, hey, we see maybe some generalized anabolic resistance, especially to nutrition uh, in people with more body fat. So that's probably bad for hypertrophy. There, there's, there's a couple little threads like that that you can tug on where in isolation, you can build a rationalist case that like, hey, for these three or four or five reasons, um, you know, we, we think that people with more body fat would probably struggle to build muscle. Um, and then, and then you can look at that, uh, that evidence I talked about before where, you know, overfeeding studies in people who aren't resistance training, you do see better P ratios and lean people than people with more body fat. So you kind of put all of that together and, and you have a pretty decent rationalist argument that, uh, people with more body fat are going to struggle to build muscle and have lower P ratios. Um, and so Eric, uh, Eric, he's, he's great. He, uh, he, he just went straight through school all the way and didn't spend any time on the internet. Uh, and so I think like he just became aware of that concept that people were pushing maybe like six months ago. Uh, and he was like, oh, that's stupid as shit. Um, and, and and the reason he said that was based on his, um, his research background. So, you know, if P ratios are better when people are really lean, one thing that you should expect to see is that someone who just finishes a bodybuilding show should be primed to put on a ton of muscle with minimal fat gain. Uh, and that, that's just not what you tend to see. Like there's some larger studies now, there's a lot of case studies. And when people are recovering from a bodybuilding show, they put on a lot of fat and not much muscle. Yeah. Um, 
And the other thing that he had like researched firsthand uh, during his PhD was uh, changes in body comp longitudinally in football players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I don't think anyone has ever looked at a D lineman and been like, man, that guy struggles to put on muscle. It really, really <laughs> sucks that he has that body fat on him. Um, but yeah, so he, he pulled together like the three or four studies on collegiate level linemen, you know, looking at changes in fat mass and lean mass from freshman to senior year. Um, and what you see in those studies is that in the leaner position groups, um, when you compare them to the linemen, generally the changes in lean mass are either the same in different position groups or larger in linemen than in uh, like skill players, like running mm-hmm. backs, receivers, cornerbacks. Uh, and the changes in fat mass, generally, you, you tend to not see much change at all in the skill players um, and a slight decrease in fat mass over the four years that players are in the program for linemen. So, you know, you, you have better P ratios in the heftier football players than the lighter football players. So that, that was like his actual experience in the lab looking at, you know, studies that, that would be directly relevant to questions like that in resistance training populations. Um, and I said, Hey, we can probably push this a step further. If we can find some open data sets, uh, where people measure both hypertrophy and body fat pre and post training, we could do like a subject level meta-analysis to see directly does this apply? Uh, so we did that and turns out there's, uh, you know, there, there were seven studies we were able to get our hands on the, the full data for, um, with like 180 some subjects, I believe in total. Uh, and, and we found that baseline levels of body fat were not associated with ability to gain lean mass, ability to build muscle. So looking at direct measures of muscle growth, like muscle thicknesses, cross-sectional areas. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we were unable to find direct solid empirical evidence for that idea when we look for it. And so, so that's why, that's why I'm saying like, you know, there's, there's probably a decent empirical case or a decent rationalist case one could make that people with more body fat might have worse P ratios. But when we actually look for direct empirical evidence, we just can't find any. That uh, basically summed up my entire experience with the medical literature. It's effectively every time you assume some sort of like relationship to be the case based on like physiological mechanisms as you understand mm-hmm. them. And then you're like, OK, cool. Now let's go look at outcome data. And you're like, oh, crap. It's the it's the opposite. And you just got I got so tired of being like, why is everything I assume to be true wrong? And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I just either didn't see the whole picture. Or it's more complicated than I otherwise thought. Or there's, you know players that we're not aware of at mm-hmm. this point. And it's like, eh, just accept it. It's fine. So now when I assume a relationship to be true without empirical data, I'm like, that's eh, probably wrong. Or at least temper <laughs> my my confidence yeah. in, you know, in that thing, which is so that's smart. So it does wrap it up in a little bow. So guys, if you were curious about P ratios or like, should I shred or bulk? Maybe that adds a little more nuance to your decision making. Yeah, j- just just do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's say say save for any health uh, uh, you know, concerns that may be present. Uh, otherwise, the direction is more clear. I oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. This is the Barbell Medicine podcast. I mean, we have to, you know, there has to be like a, at least one mention of like health and longevity or something in there. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Probably the final the final question. And I love this one. This is the proximity to failure question. Uh, so <laughs> I know, big, big gulp. So on the Beardsley to data-driven strength continuum. If uh, For those at home who aren't familiar with this, Chris Beardsley is like the effective reps kind of guy. The last few reps of a set are the most effective reps. You got to get close to failure in order to, you know, stimulate all the motor units and get all the, and get those muscle fibers to have tension. And that's what really drives your hypertrophy and, you know, to some extent strength. And then the data-driven strength guys are like, nah, it's the opposite. The further away you are from failure, provided you're working in a useful intensity range, you're going to get all of those, sort of improvements, but without maybe as much fatigue. So you can do more volume. And then it's like, you mm-hmm. know, so that is a two, two sides of the kind of the same coin. Where on that continuum do you think you fall uh, right now? Oh man. Uh, so I, I'm glad, I'm glad you explained the data driven strength side of the continuum. Cause I, I did not know that they were in this conversation. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Good, good guys though. Yeah. Um, 
I, I would have assumed that that's about where they were because I think either one or both of them are or have been Mike Sordos's students. Yes. Uh, and and I, I know where Mike is on that. Um, so I'm... I'm going to sub in Mike Zordos for the data-driven strength guys because I I feel like I'm more familiar with him. Yeah. Mike's perspective better, and I think they're similar, but I don't want to accidentally strawman their pers- the data-driven strength guys' perspective. Uh, sure, because I'm not acquainted with it. But anyway, I think that I'm of those two perspectives. I think I'm probably. So here's the thing, man. Here's the thing. It's tough. It's tough. I think I'm actually on both sides of it. I'm going to both sides this issue really, really hard. That was my Um, answer, but thanks. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I think... So, okay. Um, I I wrote an article about this... I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago. I forget the title of it, but if you just search, if you do failure, yeah, or, or stronger by science, effective reps, uh, it'll come up. And there have been a couple more studies published since then in the general in the general area, but I think uh, what I'm about to say still definitely holds as general trends. So there's basically two sets of studies you can look at. Um, the vast majority of the studies finding that training to failure is probably beneficial for hypertrophy tend to use single joint exercises. And the vast majority of the studies finding that uh, you don't need to go super close to failure. um, And if you either equate total reps performed or, or sets, some of them equate reps, some of them equate sets, uh, you'll still probably grow just fine. If you stay, I don't know, like three to five reps from failure, give or take. Um, so you, you have two very different bodies of literature, basically. And if you pull it all together, you, you find that, oh, you know, you probably don't need to go to failure. There's not robust evidence for the whole effective reps idea. But it is it is fairly neatly bifurcated there where you have some some decent evidence for the effective reps idea with single joint exercises and some pretty decent evidence against it uh, with multi joint exercises. And I, I kind of love that because that supports my biases. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of think, you know, you probably don't want to take all of your sets to failure with like deadlifts. But like, I can't remember the last time I did a set of curls that wasn't a failure. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. Th- that's one of the things that <laughs> that I think is funny. If, if I ever come across... Um, you know, like, like nerdy bodybuilding guys. It's like, oh, you know, you, you want to leave a couple of reps in the tank. Like if you're doing curls, so your biceps can recover quicker and you can like up your weekly frequency. It's like, dude, I, you, you could not convince me to, to consistently do RPE seven to eight bicep curls. Like if I'm doing curls, I'm taking that, I'm taking it to failure. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if it's optimal or not, but like, dude, it's fucking curls. I'm not going to stop before failure. That just seems dumb and lazy. And it may not be dumb and lazy. Who knows? Maybe that's, maybe that's the big brain thing to do, but like, I want to take that set to failure. So I'm going to, um, but yeah, so, so I think that, um, I think that there is, uh, I, I think that there's evidence you could point to on both sides of that discussion. And, and I think practically, uh, there's not solid evidence that you do need to take your heavy compounds to failure. Um, and, you know, if you talk about like eh, maybe some fatigue effects and how long it's going to take you to recover for your next workout and considerations of like total weekly frequency, I think you can also make some some decent rationalist arguments that maybe it is a good idea to stop a little shy of failure for uh, compound exercises to maybe be able to tolerate higher weekly volumes. Uh, but I, I also don't think there's a good reason to stop shy of failure for single joint exercises. Sure. Um, so yeah, like, I, I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at. I, and I think that there is decent evidence in favor of training to failure for single joint exercises. Yeah, I think that goes back to like our, the, the risk of sort of like the, the stakes of the thing, right? So like if you go to failure on all of your isolation work, like your biceps curls and your triceps press downs and your calf raises or whatever, it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you, the 
fatigue cost and the, the overall cost of training, it's probably not going to be that high, even if you did it every single time compared to like you fail, you go to failure every time you deadlift or squat or bench press or press. It's just globe. The, the fatigue concerns are going to be, or their stakes uh, for fatigue are going to be higher. And yeah, I think we actually have similar opinions on this. And, and I think the way I interpret that is that there's probably a wider range of like useful intensities for getting stronger and growing muscle than like people would otherwise assume Mm -hmm. and but it's still not like infinite it's like all right you're probably within you know five ish six reps of failure up to and including go into failure and Mm -hmm. it's like all right cool so we've got like this upper end of the intensity range that we're like kind of working with and as you fall somewhere in that range you're probably going to get pretty good results how to tweak it up to 11 how do you turn it up to 11 well you know if we're talking about like muscle growth on isolation exercises, maybe you trend more towards, you know, going to failure or getting closer. And if you're, you know, chiefly concerned with low velocity, one RM strength performance, you may want to leave a few extra reps left in the tank so that you can do more sets and more reps and more weekly volume and get your frequency, you know, to the level where you actually see the greatest improvement in strength. And I, I don't know that I feel that any of that stuff was controversial, you know, as far as what I just, just said, but like, I think if you interpret either one of these arguments very literally, you're like, oh, no, can't be. If you're five reps shy of failure, you're not even doing one a single effective rep, even if you did like seven sets there. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know that Beardsley would say that. And then <laughs> if you said, no, I do some sets to failure, the data-driven strength guys or Zordos is like taking their shirt off. They're like, what? No way. You can't ever go to failure. It's like, I don't think that they would say that either. You know, that's just, it depends on what outcomes you're looking at and like, what is the potential risk of like, doing it a different way i feel like or like what are the stakes as you as you said earlier yeah so I, I, I know mike wouldn't say that he's uh right he, he has his opinions but he's he's definitely not a zealot sure yeah we're gonna have the data-driven strength guys on our podcast as well to like further talk about this but like people on instagram see austin and i do like it's like my best deadlift is 738 but i usually don't work higher than like 660 or 670 in training for like doubles or triples and people are like oh that looked so easy i'm like well that's the point like yeah. i'm not trying to like blow my wad in the gym for like a random rep pr you know yeah. uh even though we as we both know if it's not a heavy set of five it ain't worth a fuck so it's like i just don't want to go to that level and and incur the cost where i wouldn't be able to do either back off sets or train the next day uh, to the level that I, I would prefer. And again, mm-hmm. I don't know that that's controversial, but if I'm doing biceps curls after that, you best believe I'm getting pretty close to failure. Otherwise, like, why why am I doing them? I'm chasing the pump and I can't get there without, you know, getting closer to failure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, no, this has been great. I really like talking to you and, and kind of having these higher level discussions. Um, for people who are, for whatever reason, not following Stronger by Science, I am going to link all of your social media stuff. Where else can people interact with you on the internet besides Instagram? Uh, yeah, I mean, my personal Instagram, the Stronger by Science Instagram, those are probably the two best places. If, if you are already into my stuff and uh, are unaware of the Stronger by Science community Facebook group, or the Stronger by Science subreddit, you can join those. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've got a podcast, the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series, and I'm a frequent guest host, uh, guest co-host, uh, temporary on a temporary basis on the Stronger by Science podcast, which you might also enjoy. Perfect. You're not on Twitter. You're not just arguing with people in 160 characters or less. I am on Twitter, but. Uh, I mostly just lurk to observe and laugh at shit posts. Yeah. I just follow researchers out there because I feel like they're, they're scooping the the articles that I want to read. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, and occasionally I'll get myself into, into some stuff. So very cool. All right. So we'll link all that in the description below. Greg, thanks for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap on this week's podcast, episode 136. Again, that was Greg Knuckles of Stronger by Science. All of his links are in the description below. And then we have some links to our stuff in the description as well. So on our website, you can find a bunch of different articles covering everything in the health and fitness scene. Also, if you want to rep barbell medicine at your gym or wherever you get your physical activity in, we have a bunch of merchandise available for you there as well. In addition to a bunch of training resources, whether that be templates, coaching, form checks, And of course, our pain and rehab consultations. We also have a link to our YouTube channel uh, in case you'd rather watch this information. And finally, before you head out, 
Uh, make sure you leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you get this podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we appreciate the support. And we'll see all of you next week here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you.